part two then, I want to bring you a message called Tame the Tension. Tame the Tension. Here's the bottom line as we jump in. You have participated in all of your bad decisions. Surprise. That's the good news. I, me, we, we have all participated in all of our bad decisions. We can blame other people as much as we want for many things, but we cannot escape the fact that when it comes to decisions that we made, we participate in 100% of our worst decisions. And isn't it true? A single bad decision is always a first step or their first step to becoming your own worst enemy. How many of us find ourselves in positions or situations relationally, financially, perhaps even ethically, where every day we're conscience-stricken, we're torn because we know we live in a reality that makes us uncomfortable, that makes us dissatisfied, a reality that if we had the power to right now, we would change. And what's so interesting is when we oftentimes look uh, outwardly at other people who are in such circumstances, understand that none of us, maybe you in it or us, us looking at it, none of us ever dreamt or desired or planned to be where we were. How do we end up in these situations where we've said something or done something or should have said something or should have done something that wasn't said or done that led us to be our own worst enemy? A single bad decision. Bad decisions don't make good people bad. Bad decisions lead good people down the wrong path. It was very simply put, as we think about the new year, and everyone's into the January fad of habits and getting fit and all these things. Every habit, good or bad, begins with a first time. The first time you go to the gym. The first time you smoke a cigarette. The first time you pick your Bible. The first time you sleep with someone that isn't your spouse. The first time you pray to God with all earnestness. The first time you lie to yourself. Every habit, what, what, be, what becomes habitual and normal, what ends up controlling us in the beginning is simply a little flirtation, checking you out to see what's going on. Every pattern, because habits become pattern, begins with a first line, and every journey begins with a first step. So here's what we're going to do for the remaining of this series, the remaining parts of this series. It's a four-part series. This part two. So there's going to be today plus two more. I want to give you preemptive habits. I believe God's word is packed full of wisdom that can help us develop good habits that will lead us on a straight and narrow path. What we want to do over the next three weeks is give you preemptive habits that hopefully when it comes to the crossroads of what's good for us and good for others and bad for us and bad for us, or good for us, bad for others, or good for us, bad for us, if it isn't good for everyone, it probably isn't good. When we get to that crossroad, that, that, that dilemma uh, place, how do we, what, what tools do we need? What information can God give us to make us, to help us make wise choices? I'm going to tell you the first one right up front, and then we're going to jump into a story. The first preemptive habit. Preemptive habit number one is this. Pay attention to... Attention. Come on, say it loud with me, Navin, Dublin, Doc. One, two, three. Pay attention to the tension. Come on, we do better than that. Pay attention to the tension. What does this mean? It means whenever we find ourselves tempted to buy, uh, do, speak, or the opposite, don't start selling yourself. Start listening. You see, in our heads, we all have the world's greatest salesman we all have the the greatest marketing weapon in all of planet earth for you lives between your ears oftentimes what good marketing does is it just creates a conversation in your head between yourself 
on yourself. Because we're always selling ourselves on things. The problem is, oftentimes we're selling ourselves on things that we should be listening to the voices of those that love us and even listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and, of course, course God's Word. For example, if you were to take that little voice in your head that sells yourself things and apply what it says in the context, if it was a real living salesperson in the shop or online, or if you're going to buy something, can you imagine how you or those around you would react when they hear the kind of things you tell yourself? For example, you go to buy something, and uh, you know, you're thinking, I want to buy something, and you know, what the salesman says to you is, well, you know what, worst case scenario, if you don't like it, just give it away. The other day I was in a shop with my wife, and I was trying to buy a new luggage. I've uh, had the same kind of luggage bag for six years. It has served me well, but it's, it, it's beaten up. You know, it's just, it's got, it's got a wonky wheel. If you turn it at a 60 degree angle, tilt it forward and it moves. If not, it's all a problem. So I want to buy a new bag, but I want to make sure I buy a good bag because I, I, I fell into a trap in the past of going to certain stores, which should not be named <coughs> pennies, and buying a bag and going on a trip and coming back and like having to gather all my stuff because the bag was obliterated one trip. In fact, what led me to buy this bag to begin with was I'd bought four bags in succession and they all broke. And I was like, enough is enough. I need to stop being cheap and invest in some good technology, some good, some good kit. And so I bought this bag and it served me well. So I'm in this place where I'm, I'm investing in a new bag. It's a lot of money. It's a big decision. I'm not sure. Should I? Shouldn't I? Can you imagine if the sales, they turn around to me and say, well, worst case scenario, if you don't like it, you know, I'll just give it away. I mean, we would be shocked. The cheek, the horror. We didn't give it away. I'm spending all this money. But the truth is, every time we go online and hover our cursor over by what we tell ourselves is, ah, sure, worst scenario, it'll be an opportunity to be generous. Sure, I can always give it away. Here's another one. You go to buy something and it's really, really expensive. And the salesperson says to you, oh, I see you already have one, but this one is newer. It's just new, 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 new. Again, if, if we were in a, in a shopping environment with people and the salesperson said, well, you know what, that, what you have is grand, but actually this is newer, we'd laugh thinking the cheek of that person. But every single time we see that new whatever, car, new iPhone, new thing, this is what we tell ourselves in our heads. Here's a good one. Yes, it's very wrong. Nobody will know. Nobody will know. Sure, how will they find out? Can you imagine being shopping with the kids and you're, you're, you're in this, on this ethical crossroads? You're thinking, should I, shouldn't I? I remember years ago, I worked as a, as a footwear salesman in a shop and this guy was actually uh, coming to buy a new pair of Air Max. And uh, we're, we're, we, I go through the sale and we're walking to the till and he makes this joke. He says, oh, the miss is going to kill me. And I said, why? He said, oh, this is the whole week's dole money on shoes. I was like, did you say you had kids? He said, yeah. I said, I'm not selling you these shoes. Then he goes, what do you mean? I said, I refuse to, I refuse to be complicit in your stupidity. You need to go home and buy food for your kids, man. And I got this whole verbal kerfuffle in front of my manager. And I was like, I'm prepared to lose my job and then to be, be aiding and abetting someone who, who has responsibility to their partner and to their children. But again, what we tell ourselves is, yes, it's very, can you imagine if I said, oh, that's excellent. They're going to suffer and be hungry, but at least you can rest in the knowledge that you're wearing the latest model of Nike's Air Max. It's crazy. Or here's another one. Sure, your husband will be hurt if he found out, but let's be honest. Your husband's stupid, 
and won't find out. Or, yes, your girlfriend would be devastated if she knew the truth, but let's be honest, she'll never be as attractive as dot, dot, dot. When we say these things out loud, it sounds absolutely crazy. But oftentimes, if we pay attention to the conversation in our heads, this is what we're selling ourselves all the time. This is how we're justifying choices that become habits, that become patterns, that become journeys, that lead our lives down a direction we don't want to become, that lead us to becoming our own worst enemy. How do we counteract this human nature situation? How, what do we do? Preemptive habit number one, we pay attention to the tension. The moment you start selling yourself something, the moment you hear the voice of the salesman justifying, manipulating, maneuvering in your head, you should hit the pause button. Because you should know by now, whenever the salesman comes out, he's going to sell me something that, that more than likely I'm going to regret in the near future. Because here's the bottom line. Think about this. We rarely have to sell ourselves on a good idea. Isn't that interesting? That oftentimes we have to really push ourselves to convince ourselves about a bad idea. Think about the first. Think about this when you were a teenager and the first time you were you were confronted with a situation that you knew through doing something, lying, cheating, or disobeying your parents, you knew you were crossing a kind of a proverbial line. And remember the conflict in your heart and head as to whether I should, whether I should or shouldn't, and you pressed through anyway. Remember, there's peer pressure. Oftentimes, there's peer pressure, and then the next time comes around, and, and there's still a battle but not as much. And by the fourth or fifth time, there's no more battle. Why? Because that voice with time can be extinguished. But when it comes to a good idea, we rarely have to sell ourselves on a good idea. There's an amazing example of this in God's Word. Some of you perhaps have heard of a famous Bible character called King David. King David uh, was the guy who faced Goliath and famously defeated him. And after a period of time of serving under uh, the first king of Israel, King Saul, he became king. But before King David was King David, when he was just David, we're told that while serving in the court of King Saul, in fact, not only serving, but he was so effective and so popular as a leader that Saul had to kind of somehow bring him into the fold to stop him from becoming competition. So Saul actually gave his daughter to David to marry, which means David became the son-in-law of the king. But unfortunately, because King Saul were told in the word, his heart was far from God, God, God chose David, not Saul's son, to become the next king of Israel. Of course, when Saul found out that David had been anointed the king of Israel, immediately David became Saul's public enemy number one. The problem was David's heart towards David wasn't, David's heart towards Saul, forgive me, wasn't selfish or vindictive. Are, are, are deceitful. He wasn't trying to usurp the throne. He was just trusting God that God had an extraordinary purpose for his life. And if David every day dedicated the best effort to that relation, to that purpose, that God would bring about or determine the effect. But of course, Saul was insecure. And Saul was paranoid. And Saul wanted to manipulate things for his own purpose. So Saul banished David for the king, from the kingdom. And for a period of time, he was happy that David was out in the badlands. But eventually Saul realized that, that as David's popularity grew, people from all over the nation, all the, we're told, the, the discontented, the indebted, the distressed, all the rejects, all the, all the people on the periphery start rallying towards David in the wilderness. So Saul realizes, man, this thing is getting out of control. I better go do something about it. So Saul would oftentimes uh, pull together a raiding party, go out in search of David, trying to kill him. Now we're told 
that at one particular moment in time, Dave was hiding in this place called En Gedi. En Gedi is a desert part of the Holy Land near the Dead Sea. And like the name Dead Sea, it's a, it's, it's a very dry, arid place. And there isn't much there. There's a few oases. And other than that, it's just mountains and desert and lots and lots of caves. And in today's story, in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 2, we pick up the story here. It says this in verse 2. It says, So Saul, so after Saul heard that David was hiding out in the desert of Engedi, it says, So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. So obviously, the crags of the wild goats was some kind of like, at that time, uh, you know, uh, no play, point of interest or, or, or landmark. Kind of like we say, oh, if you go to the red cow. For example, I don't know if you know this, maybe you've moved to Ireland recently. But when I was a kid, the red cow was a roundabout. There's a hotel called the red cow. And there was a huge, I mean, at the time, it seemed like, like aliens had landed like a UFO. And we all drove around it. Ireland had never seen a roundabout. Like the Red Cow Roundabout. So for years, one of the major landmarks of the whole country come to the city was the Red Cow Roundabout. And even when they got rid of the roundabout and built the overpass and the system that now exists on the N7, uh, for years afterwards, people would still call it the Red Cow Roundabout. And of course, those that had moved to the country after were all wondering, I know the Red Cow area, I know the Lewis stop, I know the hotel, but there's no, there's no blessed roundabout to be found. And the point is that landmark became so natural to the people who lived here that for years after it was still called the Red Cow Roundabout. So, so this place called the Crags of the Wild Goats is, is a landmark. The point is Saul was not messing around. He wasn't taking 50 of his best and brightest. Saul was taking a small army. And perhaps that's because he so, he so thoroughly understood David's capability as a military leader. And he went out in search of David. Verse 3, we're told, he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. This is very interesting because I'm pretty sure this is the only reference in scripture to someone using the bathroom. But people in ancient days were like us, they needed to relieve themselves. So basically how it worked was, if you were a soldier in the army, and if you were one of those 3,000 dudes and you were marching, and you had to go to the bathroom, you just went to the bathroom in full march which is kind of a disgusting thing to entertain. But when you're the king, I need to go to the bathroom, everybody stops. And either the king is going to do his business out of the open with all the men. No, he's going to have the luxury of a cave. Well, as fate would have it, the very cave Saul chose to go relieve himself in, we're told, was the cave David and his mighty men were hiding in. So Saul had his spies scouring the land looking for David. David had his counter-spies scouring the land looking for Saul. When David heard Saul was coming with an army, he told his men to disperse, everyone hide. And when Saul's army passed through, then we will reconvene. And so David chose some of his best men and chose a cave to hide in. And as if the cosmos had aligned in David's favor, here is his mortal enemy, the king, the man out to kill him, the man who's separated from his family, who's banished from his home, he is now with his back turned to David in the very cave David finds himself in. And of course, David's men, when they see they cannot believe themselves. The men spoke and said, this is the day, verse 4, 
This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. The men see it for what it is. Here is your mortal enemy. He's right in front of you. His back is turned. I mean, swiftly and quickly, we could end this entire battle. We could all go home. Peace could be restored. And God's ultimate plan and purpose in you being king can be established. The point is, though, to deal with you as you wish. There's a, there's, there's, there's a choice here. On the one hand, you can hear the voice in David's head going, this has to be it. This is my moment. This is it. This is, this is the promise. This is where I get vengeance. This is where I get justice. This is where I get revenge. This is my moment to pounce, return, bad for bad, and to be free from the desert and the banishment and the pain and the fearing and the running for my life. This has to be it. The problem was, we're told, David felt something else, something that we should all feel when we're faced with difficult, nuanced, ethical, or even just, you know, quasi-bad decisions that might lead us down a path. We're told at the end of the verse that David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Obviously, being a king, he would have had his long robe, and, and the distance between his body and his robe might have been six feet or so. And so David was able to creep up and cut off a piece of the robe. And as David's doing this, it must, the thought must be going through his head. I'm about to murder the king. Like, I'm not about to destroy my enemy and to be victorious. Like, really what this is, is I'm about to creep up and in a very cowardly and selfish way, stab the king of Israel in the back. Stab the very thing that one day I am supposed to be called to be. I mean, can you imagine David thinking, what will I tell the king's grandkids when they go, oh, King David, oh, Uncle David, oh, Grandma David, tell us a story about how you were hiding like a coward in a cave and when our grandfather was using the bathroom, you could have and cut his head off. Tell us a story again. Like, who wants that kind of legacy? Plus the fact, as is often the case, David, in how he treated King Saul, was sowing seeds for how he would be treated one day when he himself became king. And so David decides somehow not to kill the king. Verse 5. It says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken. He was conscience-stricken. Something was happening inside him and perhaps he couldn't articulate. There was a tension, an inner, inward, internal tension working in such a way that he began to question his own motives. And of course, in that moment, he could have sold himself the idea this was God, this was good, this is for the benefit of everybody, this was justice, this was the cosmos. He could, have, he, could have, he could have justified for himself the bad or wrong choice. But we're told David was conscience-stricken. Not just for entertaining the top, but even for taking a piece off of his robe. He said in verse 6 to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. So, as we think about, like, what's, 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 what's driving this? Go back to last week's message. There's a humility in David. There's a reverence in David for the things of God. There's a hunger in David's heart to do what is right. Therefore, when he's conflicted, he realizes that even though Saul has made David his enemy, Saul doesn't have to be David's enemy. It's because Saul has made some bad choices, made some bad decisions, and has done some bad things. doesn't mean David has to retaliate like for like. Instead, David humbles himself to the point where he can actually say 
Osol, he, and again, master is like, is like an ancient term for like seniority. Like we would say sir or miss. You know, it's like, you know, this, this, this man is my senior and he is chosen by God. So God forbid that I would do this or lay a hand on him for he is anointed of the Lord. In verse 8 we're told, after, David went out, after Saul went out of the cave and went back to join his army, David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, which can you imagine the shock and horror? Like he's walking out after using the bathroom, which is already like a very, how would you call it, vulnerable moment. I imagine, imagine leaving a cubicle in a, in, a, in a toilet and hearing someone's voice coming from the cubicle behind you. Like, what the heck? That would freak us all out. So Saul's walking out of the proverbial bathroom and he hears a voice. But it isn't just some random stranger's voice, which will already be awkward. It is the very person that he is trying to kill. And when Saul looked behind him, what's David's first response? He doesn't come out sword slinging and shields and bows. Rather than using a bow, we're told he bowed down and prostrated himself with a face to the ground. What, what, what humility. He said to Saul, why do you listen? Why do you listen? Why do you listen to the voices in your head, the voice of bad counsel who say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in this cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father. Because obviously he was his father-in-law, so it's a familiar term. So he goes from like a regal, uh, authoritative respect to now a familiar term. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. See, what, what did David do? When David found himself being encouraged by his peers... When David found himself selling himself honestly, David did what we should all do. This is how you stop, this is how you prevent yourself from being your own worst enemy. David hit the pause button. David pressed stop on the voice, David pressed the influences, and we're told he stopped selling himself the idea, as we should, that this is a good idea. And he ultimately started listening, not to the voice in his own head, not to, not to the voice of those around him, but in essence to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because his conscience was saying something. And again, our conscience is like this, it's like this internal home and homing beacon that God has put within us the capacity, all of us, to hear and know his will and his ways. Even if we don't believe in him, that sense of what is right and wrong comes to us by the fingerprint of God. And God can speak into that at any moment. And David decided to stop selling himself on what his humanity wanted or what his friends wanted and start listening to what God wanted. So in verse 12, David's able to say, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done me, but my hand will not touch you. Come on, think about your life for a second. How many times would you wish that in certain circumstances you could say, My hand will not touch or do that? How many times have we in our own lives allowed our hands, whether it was through deceit or Harming others, or yeah, sleight of hand. How many times have we regretted something because we allowed our, our mind, our physical body to end up in a place that we never wanted to end up? So here's the bottom line. Saul's 
bad behavior is not an excuse for David to behave badly. One of the the quickest ways to become your own worst enemy is to adopt a victim mentality. The minute you feel, woe is me, poor me, oh me, I deserve, I was wronged, this is my chance, this is my moment. The minute you start selling yourself on that lie, you are in trouble. I remember years ago, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, my mother uh, uh, contracted this illness called glycoma, which meant uh, in her late 40s, she went blind, almost completely blind. She's got a guide dog, so she's really blind. Not, not 100%, but 99% blind. And that's a brutal thing to go through at any point in your life. But when you've lived your life and had your eyesight, to all of a sudden lose your eyesight is a pretty horrific thing. I remember watching my mother go through this, and one of the things that we don't realize, no matter how good or bad our relationship with our mothers, all of our mothers, good or bad, are courageous people. Just the fact that some physical being carried you for nine months and nursed you, that's courage right there. That's strength. And I kind of always knew that, but watching my mother deal with this, this negative report from the doctor, there was no hope, no treatment, and that eventually, more than likely, she would lose all of her eyesight was a very hard thing to, to watch and obviously much more hard for her to go through. But I remember one day talking to her about like just some lifestyle choice she was making. And she was going to fight for every inch and fight for everything. She wasn't just going to accept her fate and, and, and become blind, even though she was, was blind. But she was going to fight for her, her dignity and she was going to fight for her independence. I remember thinking, I actually said to her, I said, Ma'am, like, what, what, why are you doing this? Like, what, 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 what's driving this? She said, just because bad things happen doesn't mean I have to be a victim. I choose my fate. And I choose my attitude. I thought, wow, what a wonderful example of someone who has every reason in the world to be angry at God, angry at life, angry at medicine, angry at whatever. But rather than allowing themselves to be brought to a level of pity and pettiness, she said, I reject the victim mentality. I reject that I deserve this because all these bad things have happened to me. Because when we, when we allow someone else's bad behavior to justify us behaving badly, then we become like them. Then we're no different. Then we become the very thing that we once called our enemy. But when we decide, no, I'm going to listen to my conscience. I'm going to pay attention, attention. I'm not going to justify bad behavior because bad things have happened. When we humble ourselves before God, then we save ourselves from being humiliated in life. See, Saul, in the end, is humiliated by David's humility. This is our power. Saul is humiliated. Saul in front of 3,000 men is publicly humiliated. Not by David's power, prestige, military prowess, his strength. He's humiliated by David's humility. See, this is preemptive habit number one. We should pay attention to the tension. The tension you're wrestling with, our tensions you're wrestling with right now, falls somewhere between choosing whether or not to lie, cheat, steal, uh, uh, cheat on and murdering a king. When it comes to the spectrum of what is, what, is, what is right and wrong, all of us right now are wrestling with desires, temptations, questions, choices that range anywhere from simply skipping, brushing our teeth in the morning and murdering a king. I think, oh man, that, that, that's heavy. That, that's, that's harsh. I mean, that's, you can feel that. You should. You say, oh, that's... That, 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 that's that's provoking me. It should. You should let it bother you. Because the only fail-safe we have to not making stupid decisions that put us into 
bad habits, which create bad patterns, which leads on the bad or wrong journey as we determine for our lives, is that we should be bothered by things that bother God. And that we should, be, we should be attentive to the voice in our head. And when we find ourselves selling ourselves, we should hit the pause button. Here's the question for you. Is there attention right now that deserves your attention? Here's the question in all three locations we should ask ourselves right now as it comes to our marriage or whether we're walking as single people or whether it's ethics or money or whether it comes to, to just our relationship with God or how we're treating people. Is there attention in your heart that deserves your attention. One of the greatest promises in Scripture is that Jesus came to liberate us. He came to set us free. But oftentimes what happens is Jesus comes, breaks open the prison cell, breaks open the, the handcuffs, and we're free. But because we like what, what, you know, what, what that offers us, sometimes we chain ourselves back in the cell. How we stay free and remain free is we ask ourselves this guiding question, is there a tension in my heart? I'm ignoring, that I'm downplaying, that I'm selling myself on other things, that I'm justifying because I'm a victim, because all the bad things happen in my life. Is there attention that deserves my attention? Because I believe it's the first step to us, rather than becoming our own worst enemy, becoming our own best ally. In conclusion, as we close, uh, as we close this part one series, here's my question to you then. Second question. Are you considering behaving badly based on someone else's behavior oftentimes what 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 sounds like justice what sounds like us doing the right thing us standing up us uh exerting uh, vengeance is actually revenge and oftentimes what what is supposed to be justice against the other person is actually revenge in of our in and of ourselves but when we try to take matters into our own hands, when we try to manipulate life and serve it, when we try to, to control things or control people for our own gain, we end up like Saul in the story, insecure, fearful. Uh, Saul, we're told, uh, was, was at some point literally being driven mad by his own uh, paranoia that at any time he could be found out. He was living with a continual, uh, uh, what, what do you call that thing, imposter syndrome. And the truth is, in life, we're all imposters. Why? Because none of us are perfect. None of us are good enough. That's why we need the grace of God. But there is such a peace in that. That I don't have to be, or prove, or win, or deceive, or lie, or cheat, or steal. I can stand in the presence of God as I am in all my brokenness, with all my vulnerability. Why? Because Jesus came into our world to forgive our sin, to heal our hearts, and to lead us, as we heard, on the path of light. Right now, as you begin the year, as you think about some difficult situations at home or in work or with friends, what are some of those things right now that even as we're even as we're talking about them, you can feel the tension in your heart? The bottom line is we rarely, we rarely sell ourselves on the right thing to do. Every habit begins with a first time. Every pattern begins with a first line. And every journey begins with a first step. Today, we want to break the habit. I want to reset the pattern. I want to redirect the journey. And start in 2024 a new journey. A better journey. A life-giving journey. A grace-oriented journey. A peace-filled journey. A journey which means we don't have to look over our shoulder wondering who's going to come and who's going to find out because we have nothing to hide. How do we get there? Print of habit number one. Pay attention to attention. So as I close, just a moment and pray, 
What does that look like practically? How do we, like, what are the steps? How do we pay attention to attention? Give me some language. Well, here's the first commitment that I want you to consider making yourself. And by all means, if you have a phone, whip it out real quick. Take a photo of the screen. Write this down. I want to give you this to take with you to meditate and to think on. Here's the first commitment you can make to yourself as you learn, as we develop the skill of paying attention to the paying attention. Number one, the first part to say, is I will pause until I pinpoint the cause. Here's a great question to ask yourself. Why do I really want this? And you know what's funny? Oftentimes when you're sitting there by yourself, hovering the cursor over a buy button, which is not the end of the world in some cases, um, there's no other voices in that conversation. So if you ask yourself, why, am I, why do I really want this? Because uh, oftentimes we say, do I really need this? Not that, do I really need this? That, that's a good question. But a deeper question is, is, what is the motive that is driving this? And it's very hard to be honest with ourselves when we're by ourselves. But when you go to someone else, a spouse, a friend, or a trusted confidant, and you say, hey, I'm thinking of buying X, Y, and Z. What do you think? Well, oftentimes those that love us and know us best have the right questions to ask us. And you know, you know how they're the right questions? Because in our heads are the wrong questions. Because they ask simple but difficult questions that get us con- confronting ourselves with our true motives. And again, I would say this, that's not a bad thing. If you can go through the scrutiny of those who love you and know you and still come out with, with a decision, I'm going to do this, that's good. At least you know you've gone through some due diligence. The problem is oftentimes some really important decisions in our lives, ones that can affect our entire are being made of ourselves, by ourselves, with the best salesman in the world living between our ears, encouraging us and egging us on to do it. But if we hit pause until we pinpoint the cause, if we're willing, secondly, to explore until I pinpoint that cause, rather than ignoring my conscience. If I can explore What's really going on? Why do I have this check? Uh, oftentimes, as Jesus follows, we call it a check in our spirit. What, what is that thing? If we pay attention, if we listen, what it actually is, is God's Holy Spirit, it's God's voice speaking to us for our benefit, for our gain, and for our good. And just like as a parent, sometimes we speak to our kids and we redirect or we deny them certain things in the moment. Why? Because we know there is something so much better we know that there's so much more and our disposition towards them is loving. We want the best for our kids. But they can't see, because of their limited perspective, the reasons for why our voice is directing. But when we trust in our Father's voice, He leads us into our extraordinary purpose and He leads us into the fulfillment of our dreams. If we choose to ignore that voice and downplay it and give in to the salesman in our head, then what all we're going to do is end up in a life of perpetual regret and tension because we'll never be satisfied that we're living in a reality that we never wanted. A less than a reality. When Jesus, in fact, promises that we should have life and life to the full. This is why prayer and fasting are so important. This is why we start push. This is such a good time because as we learn to pray, learn to fast, as we learn to practice the presence of God, as we learn to, to amplify that voice so it's clear as day, all of a sudden, 
all the anxieties that normal people have to live with about making choices and motives, we don't have to worry about those. Because all we have to do is take them to God in prayer and to those brothers and sisters in the faith who also have God's voice. And oftentimes run it by them. And by those two things, guess what happens? Rather than being our own worst enemy, we become our own best ally. Because God is on our side, church. God is on your side. God is not out to punish you, put you down, torment you, to get you back. God is not trying to prove a point with your life. God wants to rescue and redeem you. And if you're here or one of our other venues, Dundalk or Navin, understand God is not your enemy. And you are not God's enemy. You are God's beloved child. And by sending Jesus Christ into the world, he proved and punctuated and demonstrated once and for all his love for you. And he wants to lead you in this year in your extraordinary purpose. You go, well, what are the steps? What do I need to do? What do you need to learn? Listen, it's very simple. Learn to listen to his voice. His voice is speaking right now. And so as we get ready to pray, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to all of us, all three locations. And I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, Father, what are you saying to me? And what is my next step? And if you're uncertain as to what's happening or what that looks like, afterwards come to any of our pastors, Sam, Rebecca, myself, Matthew here. Go to our Next Steps teams, any location. Have a conversation. We'd love to chat to you. But God is speaking this moment. Amen? Let's